Okay. You ready? Yeah, let's do this. You are listening to the Disruptive Peacemakers podcast, a podcast that asks the question, what is peace? What is a peacemaker? And how can peacemaking be disruptive? One that interrupts injustice, that disarms evil, and takes on the arduous and ongoing pursuit of racial reconciliation and racial justice. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Disruptive Peacemakers podcast. This is John Williams, and I am with who? You're with Aaron, your your trusty sidekick, your loyal yeah. friend, Aaron <laughs> Takeuchi here. Hey, Aaron, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm happy again. We get to talk to somebody really wonderful. I know. This is becoming like a really fun thing, right? Yeah, it is. It is. So, hey, everyone, we have an incredible guest today. Uh, she's an East Coast woman. She's third generation community organizer who's worked at the institutional and grassroots levels to help empower communities to solve their own problems. She's lived and worked in incarnational Christian community development in urban Los Angeles. She's worked with Dr. John Perkins, one of my mentors. Uh, she worked under that ministry for almost 20 years. She moved her family to Grand Rapids almost a decade ago, has recently moved to the Northwest um, in 2018, and she's been a facilitator, she's been a coach, and she's just done a bunch of things, and she is, more importantly than everything, it's just such a great friend of mine. We've known each other for a long time. I'm not going to tell you how many decades we've known each other for. But uh, our special guest today is Coffee Carrasco. How are you, Coffee? I'm doing good. Thank you. I'm good. trying not to, to giggle a little bit at the um, introduction. And you think, <laughs> is, is, is that all me? Yeah. That's you. That's you. <laughs> and that's only like only a third of, of, of your bio. So. Uh, we'll, we'll I know it is. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit later. I personally know that you've done just some amazing work for, for quite a long time, you and your husband and your wonderful family. But let's jump in and let's let the our listeners uh, hear a little bit about uh, who you are. So can you tell us who you are and, and some of what you do? Sure. Um, so my name is Kafi Carrasco. I'm from Brooklyn, New York. And I think it's important to for me to state that I was born and, and still am a part of a community in the 60s and in the late 60s that was a part of creating the future that they wanted for subsequent children, primarily Black children, um, Bedside, Brooklyn uh, at the time. So um, I went to a, I, I call it a modern independent Black school. Because we know that independent black schools have been in existence for a very, very long time. But that was part of this more forward, um, modern movement of independent black schools. They owned a health food store called Better Nutrition. There was a, a general store, a newspaper, um, a newspaper. There was preschool through high school. I'm trying to think there was an art center. One of the pieces that still exist, the International Arts Festival in Brooklyn. Um, there was a jazz consortium. They 
were a part of, and, and my parents uh, being a part of this, a part of bringing uh, City College into a poorer part of New York City for education. And so all the different institutions that impact life um, growing up in a community that was able to reimagine the future and the outcomes for its own children. Um, and I think that's really important to say, because I think I carry that with me wherever I go, that we really can have a different outcome and we can have a different a- impact on families and children. So I grew up um, in this community called the East in Brooklyn. Um, the East was associated with a bunch of different organizations all over the United States doing some similar things. We weren't the only ones, but I think it gives a very unique perspective. Coming to California to go to college, uh, being Christian, getting involved with Dr. Perkins and Harambe Christian Family Center, a very missional life, lived in Christian community for a while, um, decided to go into public education. Um, and that wasn't my goal when I started school. I wanted to get into public policy, but really found the, the grassroots much more, I think, where I get my energy from. And so did that for a while and um, really just move where the, the Holy Spirit is telling us to go next. And um, I think um, now it's it's some of a just pay attention and listen and you'll find where your next steps will be. So um, that's a little bit about me. I am a mom of four from 20 years old, almost 21, down to 11 years old. And I am home with three of them in school right now. And, wow. uh, <laughs> and, and I'm a teacher and I never wanted to homeschool. So <laughs> it's a little bit of a challenge for me. I hope that's enough to yeah. get us started. Yeah, that's great. So I know you've been teaching for a long time. Are you still teaching uh, in a school system or are you doing something different now? No, I, in terms of, you know, work, what do I do on my, my day-to-day time? Um, I, I'm not teaching anymore. I haven't taught for quite a bit. I do teaching in churches and nonprofits, that type that type of thing. I'm not teaching children. Um, I ran a um, community um, nonprofit for a while, so oversaw tutoring and some adult education things. Um, right now, I am director of admissions and student services for Baki Graduate University, um, an online global um, university that equips Christians in every sphere of life to be about transformational change in whatever place they are. So I, I just kind of do some um, day-to-day kind of administrative work um, while I, I am working on a PhD in innovative urban leadership at Baki Graduate as well. That's good. So um, Aaron and I decided on the name of Disruptive Peacemakers uh, as a title for our podcast. And we've been asking all of our guests, what does disruptive peacemaking mean to you? Yes, I, I love, love, love the title. Um, and, and part of the reason I like the title Disruptive Peacemaker is that I think that the way that we understand peace, that the title really is the juxtaposition of the two words, disruptive and peacemakers, because we have been generally in United States culture, but probably in, in most places taught that peacemaking is something that is passive. And something that, um, the, the goal is, well, not the goal, but even the, 
the way that you go about peace is to keep it quiet somehow as if peace just comes, right. you know, um, and to really be a peacemaker. And I, I believe this is biblical to really be a peacemaker means we have to disrupt. We have to make things uncomfortable. We have to um, turn over new spaces, even in terms of the, the scripture of um, the new wine and the old wineskins. In order to bring peace, the old wineskins have to burst. Um, mm. So I really like this idea of this tension of what does peace really mean? I, I think Martin Luther King really speaks to it well when he talks about true peace and false peace. Mm-hmm. And the false peace that just looks quiet and peaceful is not true peace. That is not peace that comes from justice. That is a, a false peace that is aimed to keep things uh, the way that they are. In fact, he has a sermon um, when I think is when peace becomes obnoxious. Hmm. He says um, that is a stench unto God when wow. we call injustice peace because there's no chaos, but there's injustice still present. So I, I really appreciate the the title yeah. of uh, disruptive peacemakers. Coffee, did you know that you are the second um, reason why I worked with John Williams on <laughs> on on <laughs> racial justice? And items such as these. Did you know that? No. <laughs> Do no. tell, Aaron. <laughs> yeah. So you are the second reason why I um, did this work because I came to your workshop yes. and you were, you laid it out. You laid it out really well so that like there was no escaping. Oh yeah. Racism is real. <laughs> it's been going on for a really long time. There's all these facts. There's all these things that just show that no matter what, it just keeps going and going, but it just keeps um, changing, I guess. Um, do, you, do you think you can teach everybody right now, like um, everything you know about racism? <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> this is 40 plus years. I'll only say that, uh, that I'm over 40. This is 40 plus years. So, so like I said, the way that I was raised and educated was with the lens of not just Black liberation, but um, liberation and freedom for everybody over the world. And, and I remember that we would talk about the different struggles of different um, countries and continents um, and to understand the, the ways that colonialism has shaped the globe over and that our own liberation and and oppression is is not separate from what we see all over the world and even i think from a spiritual perspective that any time we observe inhumane treatment um it kills something that's human in us at the same time so this really interconnected place and so really just to say that <laughs> this is this is close to 50 years of, of learning because even in elementary school, even in preschool, um, I remember from time to time being like to our, to my parents, especially my mother, like, I remember being in high school and being asked these questions about U.S. history that I could not answer that were kind of commonplace, but mm. that just wasn't our perspective. <laughs> you know, all the small details, uh, 1492 about Columbus, we weren't 
you weren't taught that. So this is just a lot of history and a lot of, um, again, this idea that we can revision an outcome, but it takes going all the way to the beginning right? to, to set the stage for how do you want your end to be? Begin with the end in mind. Uh, that's Marva Collins. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Another one of your influences. One of, one of the great <laughs> teachers in, in Black history, but in the United States. Um, yeah. Hands down. Yeah. Let's stay with the family for a moment. I- I'm curious. Um, I know off mic, you and I have had dozens and dozens of conversations about, about your family and how you grew up. I'd love to go into that just a little bit more because what I've always appreciated about you is that there always has been this rootedness with respect to history. Like you've never been fooled or tricked or whatever about what the real narrative of our country's history is. And, and your parents, while, and I'm not even sure if they were historians or was it because they lived in a collective type of a community. Uh, but I'm just curious, like, how did that come about? And the second part that we'll ask is, how are you raising your kids kind of with your own history of how you grew up? Yeah, so I, I think it's, it's even before my parents. My grandmother was a woman way ahead of her time. But um, some of the, the stories that stick out to me is that she was a single mother with seven children at the time. And I believe she left her, her last marriage because of abuse and, and went and took her children and, and lived in a, think a two bedroom or something. And the family was very, very poor at that time, but that was something that she chose to do rather than live um, in a, in, in an abusive relationship. Um, and she had, I'm trying to think three sons and four daughters, but one of the stories about my grandmother that was that she had done some college, and this is in the, must be early 1910s, maybe early 1920s. You know, I'm, I'm not exactly sure the time. Um, she died before I was born. So this is all family story, but she was involved in local politics. Um, and so one of the stories is that she would, her, uh, what we knew is that she had run for maybe city council or some sort of local governance board. But she, a Puerto Rican man and a Jewish man, actually would work together. And so this idea of collaboration, this idea of understanding the interconnectedness of how race and oppression affects different, it affects us differently, but it's still common. And um, I recently, so I knew she had run for office. She um, dropped out and they promoted the, the Puerto Rican man. I don't know exactly if he won or not. But the other thing that I heard was that these three people, her and these other two men would actually look around for local government openings and they would organize around getting somebody in, into that position. So it, again, it's just this idea that even before my parents, this idea of being involved in local politics, being a part of the change that you want to see, um, organizing, collaboration, building alliances, you know, there's a better word than alliances, is, is something that has just been passed down to me. And so by time, you know, my parents come along and, and this is my father's parent bringing this. But then we have been in a, lo- a big community 
I mean, I'm still connected to, to many of these people who it really was a large community where everybody was pushing and having a part in, in, in this outcome. And so you can't help from the school, from the nutrition, from the arts, from the songs that we sung, from people being involved with the New York City Board of Education, all that kind of stuff. I'm like the fish that, you know, this is just what what I was raised in. My parents owned a, a, a bookstore, a black bookstore called Awareness Communication. And it sold primarily um, black books, but more than just black books. It was awareness. So, you know, back in the day, they used to call it being aware. Uh, <laughs> right, and, right. <laughs> um, and so, um, you know, there was tons of books. And then at a set, another point, they mostly sold college textbooks at Mega Evers College, which is the city college that they helped to bring to uh, Crown Heights in, in Brooklyn. So we were a family of readers all the time, books around us all the time. We would help out in the bookstore. We had to unpack books. We had, you know, while you're there, you're just reading books. And then we would actually have professors who would actually have conversations with us um, sometimes. And so uh, those are things that I remember, but I just, I can't pinpoint any one thing except to say, this is just the lane that God placed me in. And this yeah. is not a God believing family, mm -hmm. um, but everything is for his purpose. And I clearly see how the family of origin is for his purpose for me mm -hmm. through what he wants to show me. Yeah. How have you pushed that forward with your kids? Uh, it's a little harder because again, they do not, we do not have the same community. We've actually moved quite a few times. So community is, is a little bit difficult. So I, I think that makes it harder. Um, and I'm not, I, I wonder, you know, are they getting everything that, that I need them to get? And the answer is probably no. <laughs> and part of it really is the reliance on community that I know I grew up being taught through other relationships. And my kids just don't get that in the same way. So we, you know, we read books, we have discussions sometimes, um, you know, my family of origin, we still do discussions together, you know, so my kids are probably more aware than most children. Um, they're not totally getting everything that I know that I got. Yeah. And and life has changed and life has gotten more complex as well. So Yeah. It sounds to me like you are actually blessed with a glimpse of heaven from the time you were really young, right? To see your grandmother take a leadership role, right? A, a woman of color working with other people of color and how they collaborate together, going to the school. And, you know, initially you had said, yeah, as we all know that we have these like certain schools where community schools and all these things. I don't think so. I don't think most people do know that those, like I'm listening to it and I'm like, what? I didn't, I didn't know that there were schools that, you know, really taught a different kind of curriculum and, and surrounded these children with beautiful examples of having a health food store and a newspaper that delivered news that was really relevant and not like filtered through a certain lens. Yeah. That's yeah, just amazing to me. Called, the, the, the newspaper, the magazine was called Black News. Wow. So <laughs> Wow. And, and, and it was, it was a really leaning into what, what does blackness mean? 
Um, what yeah. does it mean? It, it, it doesn't just simply mean, it doesn't mean racial identity as defined by the dominant narrative. It, it is something that is very, it's not everything. It's not everything yeah. that, that's cultural. So yeah. Yeah. And, and it, right? Like, okay. So you're talking about your kids also, and you're saying, yeah, you know, they probably know more than most, but they don't have that full perspective that you have because you are surrounded by community. And how sad it is that how long ago was it that you were part of that community, that amazing, beautiful um, situation where you could learn so much and have a glimpse of heaven, right? Um, of what it could really be like. And then how many years later, we don't have anything like that, right? It's me saying, what? You, there used to be places like that? You would think that we would have more of those now. And yeah, how could your kids have as much as you did if there is not the community, right? If schools are not teaching these things like we should be, that there's different lenses rather than what's typically written in a textbook. Yeah, it's just really, that's sad. That makes me sad. It makes me say, also, you know, educators, this is something we really need to stand by. And we really need to, as scary as it is, because you got those parents all up behind you, I mean, behind their kids in those Zooms. I know we have to just be courageous and we need to just push it a little bit more, right? Or maybe a lot more and talk about the different perspectives. Yeah. And I think that what, I, what I've come to see is that community gets reflected in different ways. And so even being at Harambe Center in Pasadena, um, and we did have a school there as well, but we had community, not in 100% in the same way, but we did have community. Mm -hmm. We had Christian community. Yeah. We had people living in the same neighborhood. We had weekly meals. We had, we were studying together. Um, we were parenting each other's children. And I would say, you know, so we spent almost 20 years there. Um, and we went to Grand Rapids and, and that was a little bit different, but you know, the last five or six years that we were there, we were there about nine years. And I would say it take, took at least four years to build something similar. And even though it wasn't as full, mm -hmm. um, there were pieces because there were still <laughs> families mm -hmm. that, in fact, my son was telling, he's doing a project for Kelvin, uh, something with the Perkins Fellows, and he, and he mentioned um, a good friend of mine, Stacia Hooksma's daughter, who helped him um, mm -hmm. with his project. And 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 I was just thinking, I was like, but we had a few families that we knew that we were moving in the same place, and so now we're in a different state, and you know, it, it's going to take some time, but I think, and you, I think you're right in that this glimpse of the kingdom in terms of the richness of relationship and how communities should work is that they should, and they ought to produce people of integrity as well as produce systems and institutions that actually work for the, the outcomes that we agree upon and, and that are good outcomes because we do have systems that work on the, the agreement <laughs> of, of people, but, um, and, and those were started in, in a white supremacist time yeah. and, and in an, and in a colonial 
time period. So they really just produce those original agreements. Um, And so we do want to have institutions that work. And and the smallest institution is the one of family. And so Mm -hmm. even if it's just a few families that are doing life together, um, I think we we are able to recreate some of that richness. Yeah. And and it has, it's unfortunate because it, it has ruined in some ways. I think it's made it harder for my children. And I was talking to a, a good uh, friend of mine who's actually here in um, the Portland metro area. And um, her, uh, her name is Pauline Fong. And she and I talk about this and, and she's just like, uh, we're like, yeah, we think those things actually make it more difficult for our kids because it's harder than to find that mm-hmm. richness and that authentic community because you have tasted something that is difficult to recreate in other mm-hmm. places. No, that's good. That's good. What are some of the ingredients in, in creating that kind of community? I mean, I know you do community organizing. I know you do a lot of anti-racism work and you're a facilitator and teach people how to change systems. And so what are some of the ingredients in that? At the core of everything that we do, I think, as Christians is one relationship. So relationships build on built on trust, which also means exposure, vulnerability. It means truthfulness. It means commitment, some longevity, that even if things are not going well, that there's commitment to the truth and humility to move forward and work those things out. And and that's really what community organizers do is to be um, listened to to communities to to be there to um show your commitment. A friend of mine was saying that I think there's a NAACP around her area where before you can even speak, you have to show up a certain number of times. Wow. You know, so what is your commitment? Don't just come in here and try to say something. But how are you going to be with us in in the long run? I love that. Yeah, you have to show up so many times. You have to show commitment to the people that you are going to speak to before you just come and drop your little bomb and say, thank you very much. And then walk away. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what good mm-hmm. is that going to do? Mm-hmm. That was real. That's for you. That was, that's like, so you can have a platform to say exactly. something. That's nothing exactly. about the people that you're saying that you want to journey with. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so you really earn permission. I think in community, you earn permission to be in community with other people. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. really good. What is the role of, of, of gender? Uh, how are you seeing that? Cause for us this season, we're talking about the intersection of gender and anti-racism work. Mm-hmm. Um, for you, what's that role? What's your experience been as well? You know, it's really complex because I am in a church now that <laughs> does a lot of separating, mm. uh, due to gender. And mm. it's, I, it's one of the first Spaces that I've been in that mm-hmm. does that. And so, like I said, I'm well over 40, but I'm, I'm actually still trying to figure some of this out. Um, you know, most of the spaces and I've had a pastor say, how, how did, how did you become so confident in what you were saying? And I was like, because of my father. That's right. why. <laughs> and, and I actually mean my biological father, Job Mashariki. Um, and so, um, <laughs> you know, so, so there's certainly, I was raised with some gendered norms. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think anybody can say that they were completely free from that, 
but it was not outside of the gender norms for, for women to be, a, obviously my grandmother, for women to be a part of building and be a part of recreating. And that's not to say that they're not gender power issues um, because right. the women, the, the sisterhood, the, the sisters of the East actually published some pieces recently of our history where they actually laid out some of these issues. And so it, it's not to romanticize anything. Um, those mm-hmm. issues are there. And um, I think it is complex because I do think because this is a patriarchal system, there there really is kind of this male to male thing. You know, right. how do how do white men in their power structure deconstruct and dehumanize other men? I, mm-hmm. I think that's real. But at the same time, if we're really gonna move together, I think we have to realize there are ways that leadership gets inscribed as male and there are mm-hmm. ways that domination is inscribed in maleness. And so to undo those things, we actually have to explore completely new ways. Mm-hmm. It's not just decolonizing from a European Western center. It's decolonizing from all of the ways that say this is the narrow view of human expression. And these are the ways that are um, looked to as the best, the leadership ways. And and those other ways are that's fine for the home or that's fine for, you know, in fact, that's not even fine. Everybody else changed their ways. But the loudest one, the one that's the most vocal, the one that speaks the quickest, a lot of those are, are male inscribed. And there are women who are like that as well. But we ascribe those to male leadership. Mm. And I think that in order to really decolonize and recreate our space, we have to embrace some of the traits that um, are possessed by the other, at least 50%, almost 50% of, of the world, which is women. Yeah. And stop saying that these traits are male and these traits are women. I, I just, I think that's a disfavor to uh, God's creation. Yeah. Hey, Coffee, um, back in the spring, you, your husband, Rudy, my wife, Tina, and I were having a, this really good conversation about when we're doing anti-racism work, when we're doing reconciliation work, um, how historically it's been, let's solve the issue of race first and let's ignore until we solve the issues of race, then we can jump on the issues of women. Mm-hmm. And you were saying some really profound things in terms of how you've shifted your thinking, how the group that you work with in your anti-racism work includes now that intersection and talking about how women of color are more marginalized, not to get into oppression Olympics, but how unless we address that issue, we can't all be liberated. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I'm not I'm not 100 percent remembering all of Mm -hmm. that. Um, So I'll I'll give it a try. And (laughs) (laughs) and if you like it, good. If not, we'll we'll edit it out. You know, I think that part of the issue of race is that we know that people use other isms to escape discussing race. Right. Right. And so then somebody can say, well, that's like um, I'm a woman and, you know, it works. I have to work harder. Okay, yeah, that's all good. But we can't escape. If we want to talk about racism, we can't just use that to just say. We're, we're all the same. That's not true. 
But at the same time, what we know is that racism and heteropatriarchy affects all of how we define humanity. What does being a human even mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And so in order to get at race, we have to allow the fullness of humanity in order to even deal with the issue of race. And I I was doing some reading, uh, um, Andrew Draper, and he was... um, he actually started talking about uh, something that I'm learning about. So I don't know a whole bunch about this. It's called a disability theology. And mm. this idea that there's one perfect way of, of being mm-hmm. instead of every way that God has created his children is, and we can argue about some of this, but um, every way is actually a perfect way. Mm-hmm. So does that mean for somebody? Like in in a wheelchair, when they get into heaven and we say you'll be made perfect, does that mean that you were imperfect on earth? That Mm. your way that you were created is somehow imperfect versus the way that you were created was exactly how God wanted you to be. And and this is the gift that you have for us. But they end up, he ends up talking a little bit about this idea of disability theology. And what I appreciate in it is that the piece of race in there is that we treat race in a way as a disability because this is the standard, this is the Mm. norm, this is what's good. And anything else, which is very white male centric, European centric, and every other way is not good. It's decentered. And I'm trying to remember the definition. So so don't quote me on this, but Milana Karanga the founder of Kwanzaa has a definition for a race that I really like. And we used to use it in the workshop. I actually think we used it in the workshop that you guys have been in. We we don't use it anymore. Um, But he talks about race being developed at the time of European expansion and at the time for deciding and measuring who's human and who's outside of humanity. And this was with Native American genocide. This is with African slavery. This is, you know, now we're talking about uh, resources and and who gets to, who really gets to self-determine. And I happen to really like period TV. So I watch a lot of it on PBS. Um, And and one of the shows I like is Pole Dark. But There's also this thread that runs through there about between the classes in England of who is fit for self-governance, who is capable. And I think that the question, the spiritual question and the answer is that everybody is capable of self-governance, which is why God has given us choice. Right. But self-governance looks different for each person and even in each culture. And in each class, so to speak, and, and all those kinds of things. So power is the centric, the center, the white European center to say, we're the model of humanity and we get to keep all the resources. And actually, we know that that is part of the doctrine of discovery. That was church doctrine that said all resources for the kingdoms of Europe movable and immovable resources, as well as people who could be subjugated. 
So the power from the church given to the governments at that time and then enforced by businesses were forming the idea of who is human and who is not. And so then we have Native American genocide, we have slavery, we have wealth extraction, you know, all the way up to modern day. But I think it really is important to allow people's other identities to influence and to help us understand how race and other identities actually um, influence us and influence society. I can't separate my womanness from my blackness. It it is one and the same. And and it's is fascinating to me. Like I said, I'm still figuring some of this out because I'm in this church that's like, oh yeah, women, y'all go do y'all women group thing, women Bible study <laughs> over here. Even in my life group, I'm I'm in an Asian American fellowship, but even in my life group, we separate in men and women. Mm. And I've never experienced that in, mm. in my church Christian life at all. It's always been mixed gender groups. Mm-hmm. And of course, this church doesn't have women elders yet either. And I think it begs questions that people don't necessarily want to answer because I think it, it begs questions about sexuality. I think mm-hmm. it begs questions about uh, family structure. I think it begs questions about gender that we may or may not, not even want to explore. It's just don't even want to take the the control off of right um which is part of why i think people don't want to think complexly about the, all these intersections mm-hmm. but i think we have to because in order to understand how power works we have to understand whether you agree or disagree with people's behavior or, or ways that they live i think that if we do not fully explore our own power individually and collectively, then all we do is recreate the very dynamic that most of us end up getting um, marginalized by. Mm. Because the fact of the matter is that the, the life of the center is so narrow that only a few people really can be in there. And to work so hard to be that perfect and that um, have all these things about you I think um, is very draining and, and people attain. I mean, you know, so like I said, I grew up in a certain way, but I'm not going to say that I don't push my children to, you know, get, go get good, not just any education, good education, education that is said to be good by the center, you know, um, cut your hair, you know, don't wear your hair too. When my son was wearing his hair as a 15 year old, mm-hmm. totally, you know, bit, cut your hair, do so. We, we have this pressure to be right. like the center, even though we know not only can we not be the center, it's it's very toxic right. to, to even ascribe to that narrow view of humanity and life. Mm, yeah. and I hope that was kind of what you wanted. If not, just no, that's good. That I think it was probably more than what we, we wanted. That was <laughs> <Right>. pretty awesome. <laughs> wow. That was amazing. Wow. Yeah. Go ahead, Aaron. <laughs> um, yeah, when you say, I love this line, what do you need to do? Like, what is it that the center says that you need to do? Go go do that. Go do that. Because you need to, to be successful in this world. So as an educator, yeah, that's one of the things that I feel like I have to teach my kids what it is that the center is asking of them and not just my kids, but my families that support my students. 
because culturally they may not understand that what the center sees as um, ideal is not what their culture says is ideal, not that their culture is wrong, right? In fact, it's good. It's really good. Their cultural values are really good. But I've got to try to tell them, no, 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 this is the way that you have to do it in order to succeed. It is really toxic and it is really, it's very yeah. sad. It's very, very sad. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah it, it is because I think that there's a, there's a strategic nature that happens in, in our communities that say, you know, we'll put a bunch of resources behind, you know, the best and the bright. So we, we even get back to, to W.E.B. Du Bois and um, Booker T. Washington, so to speak. Right. You know, but there's a very strategic nature to our communities that often gets overlooked. And but it, it really is a, a conundrum. And I think it's that double consciousness of mm. this is what I have to do, but I don't want to do. And what it means for me to do this is to leave my family or my way of being. And you can't live in that tension space enough um, right. for, for long enough. You, you're either going to fall back um, with your community or you're going to leave your community and just say, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll visit you on a weekend when I drive in. Yeah. You know, or some, yeah. I mean, it, it's very complex. And, and the more I think the more education that we have and the more life choices we make, the more complex it becomes. Yeah. Uh, I'm wondering, Coffee, as you're, you're talking about this and this toxicity, how do you fight against that? And, and like, what are some things you do in the midst of fighting against this that grounds you? What are some maybe spiritual practices or rhythms that you do to center yourself um, mm -hmm. to fight against this toxicity? I think that's a great question. Um, because for me, it's the way I think about scripture and spiritual practices is a reframing. It's the idea of if I'm, if I'm just going about my business, the way that life and the, and the construction that we're in is going to put me on this path where I'm actually further away from God. And whether it's reading scripture, being in a prayer group, you know, devotion, whatever it is, all those things help to reorient me back to who really am I? What am I really doing? What am I really supposed to be about? Um, and I think the, the older I get, the, the more clear I am about, um, I used to hate, hate, hate when I'm seeing something or doing something. And I'm like, well, that's some white centered stuff right there. That's systemic racism. I mean, again, so I've been trained to see the system of racism <laughs> from being a little girl. Right. And I would just hate when I saw it. Um, and JW knows this about me, even, you know, being in inner varsity. Yeah. And, and I don't even have all the language except to be like, I'm ask every question that I can ask because I know that this is not it. Yeah. I, I know that there's something that's not fitting right. Um, and I would hate to see, and I'm like, I, even up until the last few years, I'm like, Lord, how come I have to see this? Right. How come I have to be? And finally, the Lord was like, you see it because I want you to see it. Hmm. And I want you to stop 
running away from the vision that I'm giving you. Vision meaning the ability to see. Right. So that's where I say being constantly reoriented. That's how I view scripture. That's how mm-hmm. I view spiritual practices. It's not just, it is, it's a reconnection, but it's, it's, I used to have a guy in my, uh, see, this is from my life group that had husbands and wives and single men and women. But um, Tim Holst, I'm calling out to you now. He would always tell his children, what's in front of us is not real. This is, this is going to pass away. This is not real. The real is heavenly. It's of heaven. So again, we spend so much time here that we get lulled and persuaded that the themes of this place are the real things that matter. Yeah. And, and ultimately they're not and, and not in a Christian escapist way. Right. So every point of contact with anything of the Lord is a reorientation mm-hmm. of cleaning my glasses, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, so that's how I view this idea of what I do to ground myself. That's just how I, I see it. A book that I read a, a few years ago was uh, Alexia Salvatierra's uh, Faith, Faith, Faith Rooted Community. Organizing. Yes. And that was another book that really grounded me as well, really mm-hmm. grounded me as well. As we wind down um, from this great um, time together, is there any question that you think that people should be asking themselves as they are moving in this journey? I think spiritually, um, and this is interesting because none of the stuff that I practiced and rehearsed, we talked about. (laughs) 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 I'm like, this went a really different way. Um, But amen, it's going to go the way I think the Lord wanted it to go. (laughs) Um, I think the question is constantly, what should I be seeing? What don't I see? So what do I see? Help me make sense of what I, do I see? What don't I see that I should be seeing? And, and I even go to, um, maybe it's Elijah that was, um, saying, I'm the only one. I'm the only one. And, uh, the Lord had to help him to see. Right. Uh, and he saw he was not the only one. Right. There were there was an army of of people on the Lord's side, mm-hmm. um, and and that's just one way of 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 understanding this. But I think we often don't see enough, and mm-hmm. so even you know, like I said, I, I feel like the Lord shows me in in terms of systems and the ways that we behave, and I'm like, oh, there it is, right there, blah blah blah. But I still think there are things that. I miss. And so one of my questions is always, what don't I see? What am I missing? Mm. If we're going to talk about anti-oppression work and anti-racism work, we still have to see who's on the margin in our own work, because then we actually center ourselves instead of moving out of the way and allowing a community to be centered. So, so I, I would, I would say that. And I think that is a function of having humility. Mm-hmm. So what don't I understand uh, in this work? 
I still would like you to elaborate just a little bit more on on the question that that you think that we should be asking ourselves or that our listeners should be asking ourselves. So you talked a little bit about humility. You talked about just kind of asking ourselves a question. Um, is there anything else that that you think that our listeners should be pondering or reflecting on or, or questioning themselves of? I do, and and I think the answer is not as simple as what is one question. Okay. So I think that the frame that I want to offer is that does my faith and does my Christianity give me the correct answer or the, the, the answer that allows me to be God's ambassador in, in the earth? Because I think as Christians, I think it's best for us to start with an assumption that our faith uh, to use Sung Chen Ra's term, has been captive by Western thought. I think we have to start there. And once we start there and say, this is not the, the, the faith that is biblical. This is not the faith of Jesus. I think it helps us to approach questions that we have about life I think it helps us to approach questions we have about today in a place that can lead us toward biblical liberation. And I say that to say a person you guys need to listen to <laughs> have on here is I, I think, you know, Adam Edgerly, um, from New Song. Yes. Okay. So I was talking to Adam because I have an idea for my dissertation and I wanted to see if he knew of some resources and we were talking a little bit about um imagination and you know some other things and we end up having this conversation where we just kind of chatted a little bit about the lack of understanding how captive our Christianity is in western thought and if we could actually recreate that or have those questions. And so it took us to this conversation that he was saying, oh, have you heard of Carl Ellis speak about this? And you know, Carl Ellis, Black theologian. And he was saying something about um, the, we actually practice theology. The, theology starts with us. It becomes questions out of our experience. God helps us correct our question. And then God gives us some answers. But in those answers, we actually formulate new questions. <laughs> and those new questions help us to create and do theology some more. We get richer and richer definition. Um, and we get deeper into the mystery of God. But it's this idea that if we get stuck with this is theology and it's this wide, and it's right. already been decided by these reformers from 1500 and it never changes. Mm -hmm. We actually are not learning who God is to us. Mm -hmm. God has to be relevant and make sense to us. Theology doesn't end with us. It ends in scripture, but it's our collective individual as well as collective questions. And the questions of our time today are unable to be answered. That's why the church has become irrelevant mm. because the church refuses to 
understand God at a more deeply intimate level than five, 600 years ago. And it doesn't mean we can't bring that stuff forward because some of it we can, but the scripture is supposed to change us. We are supposed to keep exploring and knowing God. He can't only be known once Mm -hmm. and only in a Western European way. Now, Mm -hmm. a lot of people would say that's sacrilege and, you know, all kinds of stuff. I don't really care. Um, (laughs) But if we, and this was in the prayer this morning that we, that we host this prayer this morning is that we're so stuck on what God did. We have no idea what he's doing right right now. And we're missing it just like the Israelites missed it. We're missing it. That's good. So I think we have to start there and say, what is God doing now? Mm-hmm. And once we have that lens, we can actually see a little bit better what might our step of faith be? Yeah. How might we get out the boat for him to say, come to me? Otherwise, we just stay in the boat all hell breaking loose around us and we're still staying in the boat because, you know, no, Jesus, Jesus right here. No, Jesus is over there saying, come on over. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's good. That's good. (laughs) Let me stop there. (laughs) No, that's, (laughs) that's rich. That's so rich. Um, So what are some, um, some books or some resources that you would recommend for uh, our listeners? Uh, one of my favorite books is uh, Warmth of Other Sons. Yes. Isabel yeah. Wilkerson. Yes. And uh, I read that three years in a row, read or listened in audio mm-hmm. three years in a row because it's such a beautiful, beautiful story. Um, and that's about the Black migration. Um, I am currently reading a book called Innovation Theology. Hmm by Lanny Vincent. Um, and it's actually really interesting. It's somewhat of a business book. It's a little rich, you know, mm-hmm. thick. Uh, it's for class, but I am, the Lord is speaking to me. <laughs> um, I don't understand everything. It's a little, you know, business framed, but it, it's really good. I'm really enjoying it. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also say try to read as much, as many books that are written in, um, now, so I like to read a lot of women's stories. I try to center myself yes. for people like me. I love that. So, um, and I like storying more than I like expository reading. Mm-hmm. So a few books I have read that help me even see more about me. One is, um, recently, more than serving tea, the the book about Asian American women, right. um, really spoke to me very practically, and mm-hmm. and I encourage everybody to read it because um, I think there's a lot that women of color can can learn from that, even if you're not Asian American. Mm-hmm. Of course, um, uh, Chimamanda Medici. Um, my favorite is uh, that the thing around your neck. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful book. And then I actually read an interesting book, uh, um, 
Uh, I used to read a lot of uh, Isabella Yande book, Yande books. Um, you know, books that just have women of color in different ways. But a book that I read that surprised me that I want to explore a little bit more is this uh, Korean book called Pachinko. And it was about the um, Japanese uh, invasion in Korea of a family. And it comes through to the 80s, 1980s and the 90s. But as I read the book, I actually thought I was listening to a story about the Black Migration North. Hmm. It, it was amazing. Um, and, and I'll say this to say that something that I did read, um, I was reading um, James Weldon Johnson's um, God's Trombones. Mm-hmm. And I think it's Cornell West in the beginning. Maybe it was Cornell West, don't quote me on this, or Henry Louis Gates, I can't remember, was writing What Makes a Classic a Classic? And it said that a classic is something that has to use all its cultural tools to then go through culture and become part of the human experience. Mm-hmm. So it's not an absence of culture and it's not light culture. It's actually something that uses culture in a map. Because remember, culture is given by God. It's created for humans and used by humans. So it's actually through culture that we uh, can find ourselves. And we can actually do that in other cultures if we understand common humanity. Mm-hmm. So I I really think in terms of reading, now I'm mostly just talking to women because they're very women-centered stories. Um, a lot of stories that are written by women uh, all over the world. There's, on the web, you can find all kinds of books. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I'm trying to think of some um, Louise Eldridge, some Native American writing. Um, yeah. So I, I like to use fiction in that for me. I think okay. there are theological things we could read, but I, mm-hmm. for me, fiction and storytelling is probably the best way to explore some of um, self and cross-cultural concepts. It's great. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Um, because right, I think that through empathy, we can learn so much more than, than a textbook. Yeah. Thanks for recommending those. I, I think there are, there's a lot of people that will really appreciate that. And it kind of also gives them permission to not just mm-hmm. read the, mm-hmm. I know sometimes for me, it's really hard <laughs> to get through <laughs> those really dense books, but a story. Right, can be so lovely, and you don't even realize the things that those are the things that you really think about, right? Like what happened to this person on their journey, and wow, how, that really relates. I can really relate to that, and it makes me think about these other things that I've heard about. Yeah, thank you so much, Coffee. Thank yeah, you. So good. So good. Well, we're going to wrap up our conversation today. It has been so rich. Um, I just, I just so admire you coffee um and i know that all the different times that our families get an opportunity to talk or you and i get a chance to talk i always leave the conversation just feeling smarter and so um and that that happened for sure today and and so all of our listeners we just want to thank you for joining us today uh for the disruptive peacemakers podcast we look forward to seeing you again the next time and so just want to say god bless you 
and have a great week. Aaron. Bye. Disruptive. Peace,